All of us are used to putting a price on things, aren't we? Uh, that could be our time, our possessions, a job, uh, our qualifications, maybe even a relationship. But what price would you put on a place in heaven? The eternal kingdom of God. Now, that eternal kingdom of heaven has been hinted at throughout Matthew's gospel, uh, and certainly in, in chapter 8, uh, the, the banquet that was mentioned in the passage last week. You know, heaven is a place where there'll be, uh, there'll be no tears, no sickness that we've seen in uh, the, those beginning verses in Matthew chapter 8 as well. Matthew 8 is continually pointing us heavenward. But this chapter's main purpose is to present the king of heaven. The one who's responsible for hosting that banquet, for for taking away ultimately all our sickness and our pain and our mourning and our crying. In, In Matthew 8, we see Jesus providing evidence to show that he is the very king of that eternal kingdom. And so we've seen him cleanse the leper with a touch. We've seen him heal the centurion's servant at distance with a word. We've seen him take a fever from Peter's mother-in-law. And we've seen him make, well, pretty much local doctors redundant with all those other healing miracles in chapter 8, verse 16, as people were brought to him. See, the evidence is there. It's plain for all to see. Jesus is the king of God's heavenly, eternal kingdom. We also see that God's kingdom is where the king of that kingdom is. Therefore, physically, when Jesus incarnated himself, came to this earth, that is the physical place of his kingdom. Hence, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says the kingdom of God is near because it physically was, both in place but also in time, as in its inception. And now Jesus is risen, ascended and glorified. The physical place of God's kingdom is where the king is, in the heavenly realms, as he's seated at the right hand of the Father. But, but spiritually, Jesus' kingdom is found where his spirit resides. And that is in the hearts of his people. So in the future, when Jesus returns to judge, as he promises he will, to judge that kingdom, he, uh, it will be finalised as both the, if you like, the spiritual and the physical become one in the new heavens and the new earth, as God describes them, uh, where there are no more tears and one big heavenly banquet. Now, what price would you pay for a ticket to be there? Apart from Jesus, we see two characters, don't we, in in our passage tonight, verse 18 and verse 21. They're a break from the norm in in this gospel because they provide us with a change, a small vignette, I suppose, away from the ordinary response to Jesus. But more importantly, I think, they help us to discern and examine the price that we ought to place and put a place, put as a place, in heaven. To be in that physical and spiritual, eternal, heavenly kingdom. What price would you put on a place there? Now look at the first character with me, verse 18. Why don't you have a look down there? When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Here comes our first point tonight. If you have a look at that. What price do you put on a place in heaven? Now, this man makes that all-consuming, doesn't he, promise to Jesus. I will follow you wherever you go, verse 19. 
It seems he's willing to pay any price. Uh, He will go wherever Jesus goes. And we can surely understand why he makes such a promise. He's probably seen Jesus in action, or at least heard about Jesus in action. Look back at the previous verses. He's he's beginning to realise who Jesus is. Jesus is the the king of God's heavenly kingdom. No other could do all the things that have been mentioned. The healing, the cleansing, the the releasing of demons from uh, people who are possessed. Jesus has done it all. And we can assume, probably, right in front of this teacher of the law's eyes. So surely, we've got to say this is the most... This is the most natural uh, response of this man. I'll pay any price, he says. Jesus is about to go across the other side of the lake, and this, who is an esteemed man, runs to Jesus. That's, that's extraordinary in itself. And he says, I will follow you wherever you go. But has he realized what it really costs to follow Jesus? Does he really know the price that is necessary to get him in, into that kingdom of which Jesus is the king? Now we can assume from both Jesus' answer in the following verse that he hasn't quite understood the cost. But also we have the luxury of looking back, don't we? Just one verse to see that quote from Isaiah 53. Does the teacher of the law really know the cost of entry into this kingdom? God's kingdom. Because the cost is a life. The life of God's suffering servant, which Matthew is kind of intimated towards in Isaiah 53. See, it seems that that this man hasn't quite understood that a debt has to be paid for his sin, his rebellion against God, and even that apathy toward God. His, you know, actually needs something doing to it. Needs to be dealt with. The Son of Man, Jesus needs to do the work of the suffering servant dying on the cross. Jesus doesn't say it. But his answer suggests he's urging the man, this teacher of the law, to to not promise too much too soon. Matthew, as a writer, always quotes a verse, especially in the Old Testament, but assumes you know the context. You know that by the way that he writes and makes assumptions. Isaiah 53 is quoted in chapter 8, verse 17. We looked at it last week. And it's clear that God's servant will be despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, not esteemed. Well, he's kind of saying, if the king of the heavenly eternal kingdom is despised and rejected like master, like servant. This man has not realized the cost, both for his entry into the kingdom, that is by the blood shed by Christ on the cross, the despised servant bruised for our iniquities. But he has also not realised the cost for himself. He will be despised. He will be rejected. And Jesus is kind of saying to him, just don't promise too much too soon. Am I pre- being pretty morbid? A bit of half pint empty here kind of thing? Why not try and go to office, your office tomorrow, your workplace? Why don't I challenge you and just say, you know, in, in, in the most gracious way, in your way, not a kind of false way, why don't you tell all your team, all your colleagues, all those folks that you work with, that I follow Jesus, the Christ, as my Lord and Saviour. I wonder if someone's going to come up to you and say, 
Give me a high five. That's just great news. I love to, I love to hear that. That's great. Wonderful. Give me a hug. That's just, I love the fact that you're doing that. Isn't that great? I doubt that. Will they love you more because of that? Or will you feel a bit of being despised, rejected? I guess you will. Oh, this teacher of the law says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And I think Jesus is saying, don't be naive. Don't be naive. It's easy, isn't it, to say when we're back at the back of church, eating some nice nibbles at the end and all that kind of stuff. Very, very simple then, isn't it? Whatever the cost, I will follow. No problem then. Tim, Catherine, Holly, Mark, Kate, Caroline, David and Chris. That list of names means nothing to you. But they were people I grew up with. They were in my age, in my youth group. And from a very large church, a very esteemed, very famous Bible teaching church. And they are representative of many more that seemingly were followers of Jesus Christ. But they were naive to the cost. I don't know whether they underestimated the cost of Christ bore on the cross. So later waned in their confidence in their salvation. I'm not sure. Or perhaps they were like... The parable of the sower, seed sowed amongst thorns, that when life's pressures came along, they got choked. They couldn't bear the cost, being rejected by their friends, uh, living that distinctive life. Whichever way, they promised probably too much, too soon. They underestimated the cost. I've been reading again this week, um, I've been on my travels up to uh, Edinburgh for a couple of days, and uh, a book I would actually re- recommend to all of you, I think I'm on my third read now, it's called Holiness by J.C. Ryle, Bishop J.C. Ryle, uh, the turn of uh, the 1900s, he was a bishop of uh, Liverpool uh, for a number of years, and a, a, a fabulous uh, evangelical leader in this country. Chapter 5 is simply called The Cost, and Ryle asks, what, do, what does it cost to be a true Christian? He warns his readers uh, simply that the cost is great and it should be estimated accurately. He takes a little power from uh, Luke 14 to begin with and you carry your cross and then he uses the illustration of builders estimating the cost of what they need to build. And he uses that to, to say, estimate the cost wisely because it's difficult being a Christian. He notes four costs of being a Christian. I just want to share with you, I found them very helpful this week. Each are rooted in, in, in scripture. Uh, we haven't got time to go into each, but I just want to give you a little summary of each because I think they're helpful of showing us the cost, the real cost of being a true, authentic Christian. He says, following Christ will cost you your self-righteousness. And he says that uh, a man must be willing to give up all trust in his own morality, respectability, praying, Bible reading, church going, and sacrament receiving, that's Lord's Supper, baptism, and to trust in nothing but Jesus Christ. See, when we follow Jesus, uh, we, re- we recognise we can only be made right before God through Christ and Christ alone. It's nothing that you can do or I can do. That's the first cost of being a Christian. It's all about what Jesus has done. It's nothing about what you've done. Second cost, he says, it will cost you your sins. It's a strange one, isn't it? But he says this. A man must be willing to give up every habit and practice which is wrong in God's sight. He must set his face against it, quarrel with it, break off from it, fight with it, crucify it, and labour to keep it under whatever the world around him may say or think. And what he's saying is that when we follow Jesus, 
There is a cost. That is, we need to put to death even those sins that we, no one knows about and that we, we actually secretly love. We don't want to put them to death. But he's saying the cost of being a true, authentic Christian is saying, no, put them to death. Thirdly, he says, following Christ will cost you your love of ease. It's a lovely little phrase, isn't it? He says, by this he says, man must daily stand on his guard like a soldier on enemy ground. He must take heed to his behaviour every hour of the day, in every company and in every place, in public as well as private, amongst strangers as well as at home. He must be careful over his time, his tongue, his temper, his thoughts, his imagination, his motives, his conduct in every relation of his life. You see, when we follow Jesus... There is a cost to bear because life is not as easy as we might have known before. Because we are now serving our Lord and King. And we are trying to protect ourselves against the sin and the temptations of our own hearts and the world around us. It is not an easy life. That is a cost of being a Christian. And fourthly, he says, following Christ will cost you the favour of the world. And by this, he says, a man must be content to be thought ill of. By man, if he pleases God, he must count it no strange thing to be mocked, ridiculed, slandered, persecuted, and even hated. He wrote, it, he wrote this 120 years ago when 50 or 60% of the population were church-going and claimed to be Christians. But still then, it was expected that a true Christian would be ridiculed, slandered, persecuted, and even hated. You see, when we authentically follow the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a cost amongst our friends, amongst our work colleagues. So what price do you and I put on a place in heaven? I think what we learn from this first couple of verses is simply, don't be naive. The cost is very high. We see how high in the following verse, because we see how highly the cost is shown in what God views the cost. Uh, second point then. What price God puts on our place in heaven. And it's simple. It's the death of his son. Look at verse 20 if you can. The point is made there. You might not see it at first. But look at verse 20. Jesus replied. That is to this teacher of the law. He said he would follow Jesus. Whatever and wherever. Foxes have holes. And birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has no place to lay his head. Now you will know, many of you will know, that the Son of Man is a title taken from the Old Testament, namely in Daniel chapter 7. And and Jesus adopts it for himself uh, in, in all the Gospel accounts. It's a title to describe God's Son, the King over God's heavenly, eternal kingdom. Now we're going to turn to that now, if you could. Now turn to Daniel chapter 7, it's page 892 of your Bibles. Because when we get there, page 892 you will see the rights, the authority, the power of the Son of Man, of which Jesus is. Look at verse 13 of Daniel chapter 7 with me, if you can. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, the Father on the throne, and he was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. Here's the critical word. His dominion, his authority, his power is everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. 
Now flip back if you want to, to Matthew 8 if you want. But what you see here written in, in Daniel chapter 7 is hundreds of years before the fulfillment. It, it, we see it in Christ. What we see here are the, the rights of the Son of Man. His power and authority. The Son of Man is the rightful ruler and heir of all that God has and all that God is. And this is what stands before this teacher in verse 19. This is uh, who this teacher says he will follow wherever. One with sovereign power. One with this everlasting dominion and authority. Now that seems quite easy, doesn't it? To follow someone with everlasting power. Surely that means you're going to have an easy life. Uh, Well, look what Jesus says about his earthly ministry as the Son of Man. Verse 20. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That doesn't make sense, does it, really? The Son of Man, God's Son in his earthly ministry, he's got rights and power and authority over all things. That is what Daniel 7 shows us. But in Matthew 8, verse 20, it shows us a different picture. And what we see here is is, uh, Jesus as the Son of Man relinquishing that authority. Those heavenly rights, if you like. But not only his heavenly rights, but also his, also his earthly rights. And maybe go a step further to his human rights, and maybe even to his animal rights. Look at it. foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nothing. No place to call home. Oh, we speak about human rights, don't we, quite a lot in our culture and our society. And that's a good thing, I think. We're very angry, aren't we, sometimes, for the, the human rights of various people in various nations. We think of China sometimes, don't we? Uh, North Korea, maybe those under Mugabe in in Zimbabwe at the moment. Uh, Corrupt governments who withhold international aid and things like that. But what we see here is Jesus relinquishing everything. No place to lay his head. See, what price does God put on a place in heaven for you and I? Well, the answer is everything. Because he's willing to give, him, give us his only son. I have two sons. They are a delight for me and my wife. Uh, many of you know them. They're not perfect, but they are a delight. And um, as a parent, you have all sorts of desires for your children. And uh, I, I, I've, I have many desires. I'd love them to, you know, first and foremost, to love and serve the Lord Jesus. But I, I want them to have fun. I want them to you know, do well in life, to succeed, to uh, do what they can. Uh, on holiday, I went with my, a great ambition for them to succeed in life. I took them to a swimming pool. I like swimming, and I wanted um, Zachary to be able to do two lengths. Dennis, one length. I wanted two lengths. That's all right. Two weeks to do that's fine. I wanted Barnaby, he's not the most graceful of children, uh, to be able to dive into the pool without displacing the majority of the water. <laughs> <clears throat> I have to say, we failed in both of those ambitions, those kind of dreams for our children. Zachary, um, over. Um, kind of compensates, he's just ultra aggressive in the water um, and does strokes, I mean, he just looks like you know, so, so fast and splashes everywhere, he kind of loses breath after one length, he just can't quite manage it, you need to work on his technique basically, and Barnaby just enjoys bombing too much um, to ever get to be a graceful diver, I love my boys and I'm embarrassingly proud of them sometimes I try not to be, but what would it take to give up a son? I for them to have no human rights, no animal rights, to be nailed to a cross for no just reason. 
That question is unthinkable for me. Well, God the Father loves you and me so much that he's prepared to to give his son, Jesus. Send him to this earth. Uh, He has nowhere to lay his head. It is such a lowering of position that the great eternal son of man would lower himself, humiliate himself. All this authority to become, well, the suffering servant. That is surely why verse 17 of chapter 8 is so close to verse 20. What is the price to get us into heaven? The price is paid by the Son of Man becoming the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, which is quoted in verse 17, says the suffering servant, well, you know, took up our infirmities, pierced for our transgressions, wounds, by his wounds we are healed. There is so much language of swap transfer, substitution in Isaiah 53. It goes throughout it the whole time. And there is a transfer in all those statements, which is exactly what Jesus is doing for us. As the Son of Man, he's this all-powerful, eternal king. And as suffering, as servant, he's one who transfers onto himself the punishment that our sin and our rebellion and our apathy towards God deserves. The Son of Man who has nowhere to lay his head. Why? Because he has become the suffering servant for you and for me. The price put on our place in heaven is a debt that we owe to God for our sin. But it is paid by Jesus relinquishing even his animal rights to become that suffering servant dying on a cross. Now too many assume that if you're born into a nice middle class society, you grow up in a beautiful, you know, well-off culture, and, and you, you know you don't rape and pillage and murder and those kind of things. God surely must want you into heaven for eternity. Obituaries are littered with those kind of assurances of God's approval and welcome into heaven. And there's this arrogant assumption in, in most of them that just because you're the majority of upright citizens of this world, that you deserve heaven. There's no sense of debt before God. There's no sense of justice for ignoring him the whole of their life. I guess you would have already seen the, uh, the news this week showing the co-founder of Apple, you know, the great, um, brilliant creative Steve Jobs, you know, finally lost his battle against cancer. 56, that's all he managed. But what a life and what a genius. You know, you, you have to say, I have to say, I've been a huge fan of his for many, many years. Um, he, he has changed our world to some degree, hasn't he? In small ways, but he's changed the world. That, that a brilliant eye for design, but also just intuitive technology sort of coming together. Very clever. Jobs was a a committed family man, it seems, from all the things I've read this week. A very generous man. A very peaceful man. A very profitable man. Apparently he's the 120th richest man in the world. Worth over $600 million at his death. But the sad fact is that whatever you have read about him, whatever accolades this man has achieved, he lived a life that ignored and dismissed the creative God who gave him all of his so many, many creative talents. And he was very vocal about that. Even at his Stanford, the last Stanford speech which he made. He may have been a creative master, you know, giving so many millions to charities, a caring father, a loving husband, but he was very obviously an unrepentant sinner. 
And that sin, that rebellion, that apathy towards God is abhorrent to God. And it deserves a judgment. See, none of us, whatever we have done, have a place in heaven, but we do only through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man who became the suffering servant. That is only, the only way that God accepts uh, a sacrifice. That is, it's in our place for our sin. Jesus has done that on our behalf. So ask yourself, what are you worth to God? What are you worth to God? Well, you're worth his son. And Matthew 8 shows us that God has come in Jesus to earth, relinquishing all his rights to take us to heaven. Finally, if you didn't know it already, uh, point number three, be warned, the price is high. Look at verse 21 and 22 with me for a second if you can. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now before you kind of go, you know, sharpening intake of breath, Jesus is using quite a a well-known rabbinic kind of teaching method here to be deliberately outrageous. What he does is he says the extreme to make a point. And what he says is designed as a warning against putting off Jesus. Or having him as one of a number of priorities of your life. No, Jesus can't be telling this man, uh, you know, ignore your duty of care towards your uh, relatives, both whether they're alive or dead, because he's warned the Pharisees of, of uh, doing, uh, not doing that. Earlier on, um, or later on in the Gospel, he will, he will say that. And Jesus uses the extreme to, I suppose, fire a warning shot across our bounds. He's warning us against delay. He wants us to have him as number one priority of our lives. Distinctly. The previous man in verse 18 was in danger of promising too much too soon. Commentators flip this one the other way around. Say the second man, this disciple, kind of a loose follower of Jesus here. This man is in danger of promising too little too late. I've got better things to do, Jesus. I'm I'm sorry, I, I can't quite make it today. I'll follow you next week. I mean, you know, you can be Lord and King perhaps next month, once this relationship has kind of seen its course. Oh, this man realises who Jesus is. He, he seems to know the cost of following him, but he wants to put it off. He wants to do something else. And just say, hang about. I, I, I'll just put it in my diary for just a little time ahead. And Jesus is saying to him, stop the excuses. Just stop it. Stop putting it off. Oh, one day you'll be burying your dad? Yeah, maybe. One day it'll be the work at the office that you'll use the excuse. I've got a big project on at the moment. I can't, I can't possibly. One day it might be a relationship. One day it might be an illness. Stop putting it off. I lived at university with the captain of the Great Britain hockey team. Uh, we played together at university. He was by far the best, the most natural hockey player I've ever met. He was the most lovely and charming man. And really supportive of me uh, throughout my time at university. A good friend. His father was a church minister, a Methodist minister, uh, a lovely man. He knew, uh, John, my friend, knew and believed Jesus was the suffering servant. In fact, he could teach it better than I could, by a long way. And he wanted to follow Jesus. But like this man in verse 21 and 22, he wanted to follow Jesus on his terms. He didn't mind Jesus being his saviour, but he couldn't stand the fact of Jesus being his lord. 
He wanted to wait. He had other priorities. He was travelling the world, playing for Great Britain and all the kudos that came with that and the money and the women and everything else. See, following Jesus means to follow him as the son of man. That is with eternal dominion over all of our lives. So you can't follow Jesus with a partial get-out clause just in case things get too tough. Jesus can't be an interest amongst others. Maybe it's a relationship, friends, sports, social life, work. John, my friend, however much we chatted, however many times we went out for a beer and we could talk through the Bible and we'd open the Bible in a pub, which was pretty unique at university. I mean, he loved to talk. And he loved to talk about this. But John could not follow the Son of Man, so he turned away. Too little, too late. The Lord Jesus seeks our all. And that's the price, and it's very high. What price do we put on our place in heaven? Well, the price God puts is the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But his only son is Lord, the Son of Man. Therefore, his followers, his children, those who will dine with him in that eternal heavenly banquet, are those that promise now to give up everything for their Lord and King. And I suppose what we learn from here is say, don't put it off. Let me finish with just one little... Um, little story I suppose it is I, I got home the other day and uh, Zach my little boy picked up a book which I'd been reading and um, he asked me about it and so we, we started reading this together it's a, a guy called Bill Borden uh, the story is a little biography called Borden of Yale he liked the man he thought he looked quite handsome in the front <laughs> let me tell you a little bit about him I hope it will illustrate something of what we've been saying um, Borden was uh, a very, very wealthy man. He grew up in a family who was the largest producer of dairy products in um, America. At the age of 19, he was worth uh, $1 million, equivalent of $60 million today. Due to inherit, once his father died, um, what many consider would be billions now. He went to um, the age of 25 in 1912 after graduating from Yale and Princeton, this rather wealthy very good-looking, very strong man, made the, pay, the front page of every newspaper in the whole of America. Why? Firstly, because he gave away his entire fortune, every penny, half of it to Bible teaching work in America and half of it to mission work in, around the world. Secondly, he made the front page of every newspaper because he planned to go to China to tell Muslims there the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why would he give up everything the papers answered, uh, questioned? They couldn't understand it, and so, unless so, when in training to go to China, on the way in Egypt, in Cairo, he contracted spinal meningitis and died at the age of 25. And everyone just lambasted the papers and said, what a waste, what a waste. Well, I don't think God said that. Now, I think Bill Borden knew what it was to be justified through the, the Son of Man becoming the suffering servant and paying the price for his sin. But it also knew the cost of following Christ because what did they find with the ink still wet in his Bible beside his bed in Cairo? They found some words written in the front of his Bible and it simply said this, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. As Bill Bowden died in that hospital in Cairo, 
He, like few others, could write this. He had no reserve. That is, he'd held nothing back from God. He knew the cost and he'd given up everything. He said no retreats. He wasn't going to go back into his old way of life to enjoy those sins which he'd put to death. No retreat. And there was going to be no regrets in his life. He never looked back. He served only Christ and Christ alone. Oh, what price do you put on your place in heaven? God knew the cost, and he gave you his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the price is very high for us. And can you say, like this imperfect but great man of God, can you write in front of your Bible, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's sometimes very easy to accept you as Saviour, for we recognise our own sin and we realise we are absolutely incapable of meriting ourselves before you. So we gladly receive Jesus as the suffering servant who dies in our place on the cross, but we struggle so often to accept him as the Son of Man, the Lord of all of our lives. And from that we recognise the price of following Our Lord is high. Please forgive us when we've underestimated that cost. But please uh, push us on to desire, uh, to understand all the costs for our lives and enjoy the privilege of serving you, our Lord and Saviour. And may we be like that great man of God, Bill Borden, and be able to say, no reserve, no retreat, No regrets. For your glory we pray. Amen.